Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I really like that, uh, that picture there. All right, Sermon on the Mount. That's, uh, that's our topic. This is the fourth uh, uh, part of this, this message that I'm bringing. Um, it follows the, uh, the pattern of the sheets that uh, were made some time ago that I think I don't, if there's still somebody that doesn't have one, you can always get it. Uh, Brother David and... Um, Brother Shepherd worked on this and put it together, and I I think it's it's a wonderful study. And if we look at the uh, script up there, you'll see some of the topics that we're going to talk about today. But the first one is what did they hear on the mountainside? And that's important. You know, we can read things, but if if we're if we misread it, if, if we don't understand what we read, or somehow it's a problem, um, we're not going to get a lot out of it. But to know what they heard, what they heard, the Jews heard, two thousand years ago on that mountainside, should be very important to us. And we're reading from the passage in Matthew chapter 5. Now, if we're mistaken in the meaning of what Jesus said to the Jewish people there in approximately A.D. 29, which was early in his uh, ministry within the first year, then we're going to gain nothing from the Beatitudes as they're known. And that would be our loss. It'd be our loss. Not just ours, but how about someone that we're talking to concerning the Beatitudes? I keep coming back to the, the, uh, what C.S. Lewis, was. I think a lot of the things he wrote, but what he said about the Beatitudes is frightening to me because he takes it as a, as a, uh, uh, a teaching against the people. Uh, and he feels um, that it's, you know, typically taking it on a moralistic level. And, of course, because of his background, that, that was more, that was his thinking. I don't believe it's 100% accurate. Of course, it's, they're morals. I mean, if you want to, if they're good morals. Now, what I've found is that many that teach this passage make points that would cause one to believe that Jesus was just talking to those folks there 
trying to encourage these people of various things, like they had no means. They were uh, had no money, no no necessities. That they were hopeless in hopeless situations in many ways. They were weak in their abilities. They didn't have many abilities. And so that's the premise of how many people approach this. I just really think that's totally wrong. It's totally wrong. I would say, in a, in a logical way of thinking, people that were able to follow Jesus around in that day were probably people of means. Probably people that was able to to go around or go to him and and uh, they weren't going to leave with nothing to eat. I mean, they were going to try to prepare themselves. I think we're all wrong about this, and most of it's caused by the language of, that's used in there, in the English, people taking the wrong idea what these words mean. Um, Jesus is clearly teaching here, and, and we found in just the first two mentioned, the poor in spirit is, is not bankruptcy poor in spirit and what they heard on the mountainside was that those those folks were those that were receptive to the learning receptive to the voice of God through the scriptures through the teachings they were people that were receptive to God's will that was the so-called poor in spirit they we're allowing them, their spirit, to conform to God's spirit, his way. Isn't that what we do to become a Christian? Isn't that just exactly what is required? Yes, it is. And this, of course, is like I said, the very first thing that Jesus said, being receptive to this, receptive to learning, receptive to God's teaching. Unless you start there, these other things really don't aren't going to do much for you. In other words, Jesus didn't, didn't sit down and just start talking off the top of his head. What he was saying, everything was exactly what they needed to hear, with the first one being the most important. In my understanding, maybe I'm wrong about that, but I believe that that's what it looks like to me. They that mourn, the second one we looked at, those are the tender-hearted. What are they mourning for? They're mourning for the completion of God's promises to Israel. They hadn't hardened themselves against the word of God. And what was the problem in Israel? Hard hearts, closed ears, closed eyes. They listen to the Son of God speak and walk away and say, I don't know what he's talking about. As a revivalist, Jesus didn't he didn't meet he didn't meet the uh, the mark of our modern day revivalists. I mean, they now they might give out a few blankets and CDs along with it, but uh, Jesus had a, had a really tough crowd. Okay, it had been prophesied that they would be, and they were, but not all of them. So. What does it say? I'm reading here from the Darby. I have it today because I have Old Testament passages. 
but it reads pretty much like the American Standard. Where we're at now, blessed the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Well, there's not many words there, but I'm telling you that unless you know what those words mean, you're going to get nothing out of that. Now, here's the thing. Timid is not a, a synonym for meek. All right? Start there. All right? And I say that, uh, I, I know that in the vernacular of our day, that may not seem true. But like I said, what did they hear on the mountainside? What does the word mean? We need to know. Everyone needs to know. To be meek in the Greek, in the uh, definitions given by uh, various places that I put this together, is really a natural disposition of a person with an inward graciousness. And it's been observed that it's primarily towards their God. That's where it starts. Now, according to Aristotle, and I, I would think that when we're talking about the Greek, we can probably take his word for this. Aristotle. Um, he gives the, the word meek and, and the character of the word meek as this. It is a description of an individual that, in the idea of anger, is, uh, is a person that gets angry at the right time, in the right measure, and for the right reason. Ooh, I like that. You know, the Bible teaches us that we can hate the things God hates. Well, you're going to be angry sometimes, too. And if it's an anger that goes along with the anger God has towards certain things, you're still you're in good company. But it's at the right time. Not at some time that's not appropriate. Not at some time that's self-serving. It's at the right time. In the right measure, I mean, how many times has our anger caused us to go beyond the measure? Poster uh, defines it as uh, enduring, all, enduring all things with an even temper. That's right, an even temper. That's really what this is, isn't it? And, and on top of that, for the right reason. This is what Aristotle says. Also, the demonstration of gentleness, it's, it's a demonstrated by gentleness in power. There's a power within the person in a gentle way, a balance that is born in the strength of character. That's the meek. That's the meek. Now, how do people on the street today define the word meek? Not, not like this. Okay? So we have a situation, don't we? That's why the church is here to teach the world. I'm tired of the world teaching the church. It's supposed to be the other way around. And it better start being the other way around. 
Now, I want to also mention that both Moses and Jesus are described as meek. I don't think timid is part of anything concerning Moses and Jesus, do you? Or frightened? Now remember, through all of this, Jesus' message was to be a preparatory words and comments because of the kingdom that had been promised by God through the prophets. So the Beatitudes speak of the attributes of those inheriting the kingdom. The attributes, not their shortcomings. You see, that, that's what I see in this list. People consider these Beatitudes as shortcomings or a weak nature. Um, uh, a trodden down. No, these are attributes of those inheriting the kingdom. Now, have you ever heard what the world says about Christianity? That Christianity or the religion of Christianity or faith in God is a crutch? You see, that's, that's the old one I've heard all my life. It's a crutch. It's a crutch for those that can't do it any other way. On and on and on it goes. You see, that, that's the misunderstanding of, of what Christianity is. If you're in the kingdom of God, you live in a place where there's all holiness, all wisdom, all power, everything good. Didn't I just read here that God is the giver of all good gifts? Why? Because he has them all. That's where the kingdom of God is. That's what it is. We don't need a crutch. It's not a crutch. It's the issue of faith. And see, faith is part of this whole process. The Jews needed faith. Without faith, they would have lost, they would have not been able to endure the years that they waited for the Messiah. They did so through faith as we live in faith. So that's the issue of meek. We could go on and on about this. We could have other examples, and there are many. But I want to move on to the idea of this word earth here. Let me read it again. Blessed the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. We'll talk about inherit a little later, but that word earth is an interesting word, uh, and it's just it's misunderstood like uh, a number of other words that we find in the Bible, like world and things like that. What, what, is, what is it we're talking about? And if you study this word, you're going to find that uh, in the Greek, uh, the basic word, primary word is uh, e.g. Um, I think that's what it says here. Yeah, uh, g.e., I mean. GE in there. Um, it it has a primary idea of of uh, land that's local, ground. It, it's the opposite of the ocean, you know, um, things of that sort. It, it's the land, but it also has a, a little uh, more of an expanded view. Um, so l let's think about what's what was said here. They would, the meek would inherit the earth. 
okay? The land? Is it the land that we're talking about? Because remember, the homeland of Israel, Palestine, were they not living there then? They were. Of course, they had a... uh, they had a uh, a government there that had that was controlled by Rome, but yet they had their homeland. They had they were living. They had their their temple, and they were allowed to do those things um, as long as they were orderly, and uh, and that's why the Romans were there to keep them that way. But they had a homeland. It was their home. So were they to inherit then that? which they already had, if we're talking about the land, the country? Or could this earth or the land be speaking of something else? Oh, I I think so. So we're learning what meek truly is, what land truly is. We're going to learn what inheritance truly is. Everything Jesus said was so incredibly powerful. How he can get so much into so few words escapes me, I'll tell you that. It does. I want to read from uh, Daniel, and uh, Daniel chapter 2. I want to start here. Daniel 2, verse, verse 43 and 44. Now remember, one thing about Daniel, everything Daniel did had to do with the people of Israel. Oh, he lived in Babylon. He lived in captivity, but his work uh, was to do the king's work, but his, his heart was with his people. And all that, that was prophesied and all have to do with the Jewish people. Daniel is interpreting a dream of Nebuchadnezzar here in this chapter. He's already talked about the four, the four kings, the four kingdoms that will come, men's kingdoms. And he's just talked about the last kingdom of Rome. And here's what it says just following that. And whereas thou sawest the iron mixed with the miry clay, they shall mingle themselves, to get, uh, themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron doth not mingle with clay. And in the days of these kings, now you got the time element there? In the days of these kings, in other words, not, not 2,000 years or 5,000 years, but at the end of, right during these days, the, the last kingdom, which is Rome, Shall the God of the heavens set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed? And the sovereignty, therefore, shall not be left to another people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, but itself shall stand for ever and ever and ever. The next verse, too. For as much as thou sawest that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the brass, and the clay, the silver, and the gold, 
the great God hath made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter. And the dream is certain, and the interpretation of it sure. Those are Daniel's words to King Nebuchadnezzar, whom, when he heard these things, he fell on his face. And you would too, if you would have had that dream and heard the interpretation of Daniel. That kingdom, that kingdom was cut out of the mountain, the stone cut out of the mountain without hands. Who did that? It wasn't any of the Caesars. It wasn't Alexander the Great. It was God himself. And that is in the times of the Roman Empire, the kingdom was established. In the days of these kings, it says, the earth here is, in my estimation, the kingdom of Christ. That's what the Jews were looking for. They were looking for Messiah. They were looking for all that came with Messiah, which was their inheritance for the righteous Jew. When did it happen? Well, the beginning of that kingdom, I mean, we could say it began with the birth of the Messiah, I suppose, but really the active, the active time here is about 31 A.D. when, when uh, Christ was resurrected, when the church began, the, the, uh, uh, the concept of, of uh, the kingdom of Christ and forgiveness, through Christ Jesus, the beginning of uh, the transition period between what Christ had done, what God had done for the, for the kingdom of Israel for about a 40-year period, and then the whole thing was consummated at the end. The, age, the, uh, the consummation of the ages of the Jews. The kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, as, uh, uh, as our writer in Matthew says. Also, uh, 2 Peter Second Peter 3. You see, this wasn't just something that happened in the Old Testament writing, although the Jews were aware of this writing. And I was surprised by what Josephus commented about the scripture I just read in Daniel. He did not grasp the stone cut out of the mountain at all. Matter of fact, he said a piece of the mountain was broken off. I don't know how he got that because it was written to him. <laughs> and he made no other comments beyond it. Second Peter 3, 13 and 14. The Apostle Peter says, but according to his promise, we wait for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwells righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, as you wait for these things, be diligent to be found of him in peace, without spot, and blameless. See, the idea of the new heavens and new earth was alive and well in the days of the early church. They were waiting for the consummation of this for it to become a reality. A reality we live in right now. 
And we hear about that consummation. Jesus talks about it in Matthew 24, um, verse 3. Matthew 24, verse 3. And, and the apostles made it very clear. When the apostles came to Jesus on the mount, <clears throat> sometime later, of course, and as he, that is Jesus, was sitting upon the mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us. When shall these things be? And what is the sign of thy uh, coming or presence and the completion of the age? They knew about the completion of the age. That was said 2,000 years ago. We need to get on board with this. They understood this. The presence of the Christ would be at the time of the completion of the age. And as, the, as he speaks to them through that chapter, he makes it clear that they will see these things themselves in their lifetime. We put all the time things together and we find out the truth of God's word. Revelation 21. Revelation 21. I like this. Of course, these are words that John heard from the throne in heaven and saw with his eyes. I want to read the first eight verses. And I saw a new heaven and new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth have passed away, and the sea exists no more. Now, there's figurative language all through that verse. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of the heavens from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he shall tab tabernacle with them. And they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them, their God. And he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall not exist anymore, nor grief, nor cry, nor distress shall exist anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he that sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he says to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to him that thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcomes shall inherit these things, and I will be to him God, and he shall be to me Son. He that overcometh shall inherit. There's a lot to what Jesus said about the meek, isn't there? That kind of inheritance was more, I think, than, than, than our, uh, our minds can fathom. And that's what's being spoken of here to the Jews. Remember, Jesus was speaking to the Jews concerning 
the Jews concerning Israel, concerning God's covenant people, the promises made to them. So I believe the earth. We need to understand what the earth was and then the inheritance. Who was it from? Well, the inheritance, of course, comes from God. Now, what, what do we know? We know about inheriting, don't we? We inherit. Uh, normally, we have an inheritance within physical families, that sort of thing. Or people that have a relationship with another person, uh, even uh, husband to wife and that sort of thing. Uh, you have inheritance, things of that sort. It's something that is promised to someone at an appointed time, uh, usually concerning uh, the death of one or something of that sort, but not always. Uh, it can be appointed for a certain time in the lifetime of the person who inherits. You know, there's all sorts of ideas about this. God uses this. As a matter of fact, since he's the one that invented the word inherit and, and, and described it to us, we use what he said. That's what we should do. The righteous Jews, the patriarchs, the righteous people that lived would inherit the promises that God had promised them in the fullness of time. The end of uh, the age as far as the Jews went. But for the patriarchs and those others, they also had promises that consummated in this time period. Now, let's look at inheritance a little, uh, a little closer. John 17. John 17, Gospel of John. This is, of course, Jesus' prayer to his Father. And um, we need to remember that Jesus makes many, many statements about uh, what it is God uh about what God has and who he is in relationship to God. John 17, start with about verse 9. I'd like to read it all, but time won't allow that. I demand concerning them. Jesus is praying to God, and he's speaking of, he's praying, and that word demand has uh, is part of that word prayer there. It's a type of prayer. That, by the way, Jesus um, alone makes that kind of prayer. I demand concerning them the apostles, that is. I do not uh, demand concerning the world, but concerning those whom thou hast given me, for they are thine. Now listen to this. And all that is mine is thine. And all that is thine is mine, or just mine. You get the idea there? The son is the is. It inherits all from the Father. Not that there's a death, but that it becomes his possessions too. And I am glorified in them. That is, Jesus is glorified in the apostles and their work. And I am no longer in the world, and these are in the world. And I come to thee, Holy Father, keep them in thy name, which thou hast given me, that they may be one as we. Now that 
that gives me an idea of the relationships. And then in Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 8. I'll start with verse 16. The Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God, and Christ's joint heirs, if indeed we suffer with him, that way we may also be glorified with him. I'll read the next verse too. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the coming glory to be revealed to us. This is the inheritance. The Jews were waiting an inheritance that was beyond description, and they understood it. They they had seen uh, in in the reading in the in the prophetic writing of Ezekiel when he looked upon the throne area of of God and described things there beyond their wildest thoughts. This inheritance comes from God. It also comes through His Son. The church is joint heirs, our joint heirs. The men and women are joint heirs with Christ in the inheritance of the land, if you will, the kingdom. And um, I just think we, we need to understand that that is the this condition that the church is in. That's why it's not a secondary place. It is the eternal place. Not, not, the, not the pews in the building, but the, but the spiritual nature of the church. That's what's real. That's what the church is. That's why the Bible says our citizenship, Christians' citizenship is in heaven. That's in Philippians, I believe. Now, I know many of these passages that I have just read were not spoken yet when Jesus sat on the mountainside and taught. But the people of Israel, through, through the scriptures that they had, knew about the concepts and the promises that would come in the time of, of the Messiah. They knew these things. They studied them. They studied them. I know there's a, there's a, a group of religious people in this world today that is all they study is the prophecies of the Bible. When they have their meetings, that's all they do. Um, and keep wondering if they're ever going to get it figured out. But nonetheless, the Jews studied the prophecies. They were awaiting the Messiah. And they had many things there that, that would show them that it was becoming nearer and nearer. But like I said before, they had to believe. They had to believe through faith in God that God would keep uh, his promises as he had kept them safe when they trusted him. Now, when they departed from God, 
Bad things happened to them, but he never forgot, and he restored those that would come back. But he said he would send a redeemer, and amen, he did. Now, the people of our current day, in closing, would be foolish to neglect such a, as the Bible says, such a great cloud of witness, where it says in Hebrews, concerning the faithful people, That's a cloud of witness. It's hard to deny it, to reject it. And it makes clear, it makes clear that God has a way for man. God had a way for the Jews. He fulfilled all of his promises, both punishment and reward, to the Jewish people of the covenant put in place by Moses and the angels from heaven. But all of it was done through faith. And also today, through faith and conforming to the terms of pardon that God has given us. You know, God gave us terms of pardon. We don't make up our own. It's very clear. It's not beyond our ability. We don't have to crawl on our knees up a mountainside to go to a certain building in broken glass. Some some people do that. That's only because they haven't read what the Bible says. But that's not, God doesn't require that. That's foolishness. God requires us to confirm to his terms. And what are they? That we believe that he is. That he is the God, the creator, that we believe he sent his son to fulfill all the promises of the Bible and to, and to die. And with his blood, he, he is the author of our salvation and the forgiveness of all that came before and those that will accept it now. Accept God's promises, his pardon, his salvation, and life without end according to his way. And if you think it isn't difficult for people to come to God's way, you wouldn't think it would be, but I'm probably not the best judge of that because I've been guided along like a little baby, along in baby steps and, and, and it became part of it, but others have a more a rougher time and I don't criticize that. But they can do it too. Because there's nothing that God asks of man that he has not the ability to do. If that were true, then we have found fault with God. You won't find fault with him because it's not true. Not through our religions, our doctrines, our sects of men, our teachings, but he must, God must be all in all in our hearts. And I'll, I'll stop there today. I think that's enough. Uh, I'm trying to give you everything that I can put here on these particular Beatitudes to give you a broader illustration and appreciation of what Jesus said. He said a lot. And with that, let's have our song of uh, invitation today.
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.